Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, August 2nd, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, which you can read at our new URL, www.commentary.org. Christine Rosen is out this week. Joining us, uh, well, maybe I should go the other way. Christy Rosen is out this week. So with us, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, commentaries, Washington commentary columnist, former media commentary columnist, former editor of the Washington Free Beacon, current scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Uh, Okay, so... um, the COVID shutdown, lockdown, renewed mask mandate stuff is getting crazier and crazier by the minute. Let me just give you one indication of the craziness. Andrew Cuomo is now being sensible. That's how crazy things have gotten. Andrew Cuomo said this morning that he could not reimpose mandates without legislation. That is correct because the state legislature in New York removed his emergency powers in the wake of all of these accusations of sexual misconduct that were dogging him in the spring. An interesting response, by the way, to accusations of sexual misconduct to remove his emergency uh, powers. But basically, uh, What's interesting here is, of course, he's right, and this is the way it should go. If people's freedoms or whatever restrictions are going to be imposed, we are now at the point where they really should be imposed by legislatures, which are elected bodies, laws passed, signed by the executive, so we have a consensus of the elected officials who represent us that we need to do this, as opposed to the consensus of the public health officials in the United States whose uh, whose misconduct uh, we can get to uh, in a bit. Matt, what do you make of the uh, seeming sanity that seems to have broken out here in New York State? Well, it may be in your state, uh, John, but of course I am broadcasting from uh, Washington, D.C., where we have, unlike the states that surround Washington, D.C., the mayor, Muriel Bowser, has reimposed a mask mandate indoors. And uh, she is in the midst of a scandal because uh, as this mask mandate was happening over the weekend, she was photographed maskless at a wedding um, or party. I think at both the wedding and the party, or maybe they were related. Um, In whatever case, she was joins the ranks of these officials who um, wield wield the pen with their emergency declarations and then are exposed as uh being hypocrites kind of like i think it's Gavin her Newsom. it's her return to that uh, yeah, maybe, yeah, body she because have, she went to the biden, the biden thing yeah. celebration when right. she when a travel ban had been imposed so so, so and no, that not was, much sense yeah. here uh to, to on your point about the um political accountability of the people who should be making these decisions. I think that's important. Um, the uh, CDC, you know, is uh, very separated from politics as it happens in Washington, D.C. And in fact, there was uh, an article in Politico uh, today describing 
a, a fight within the White House um, between uh, Biden officials and CDC officials about whether the um, study from Provincetown was really enough to uh, send us back uh four months or however much we've been enjoying not having to wear masks. And so reining in the, the public health establishment through some type of mechanisms of political accountability seems to me to be very operative because when you read these stories about what's happening, it is very rare to find a public health expert or epidemiologist or whoever say, you know, eventually we're going to have to kind of reach a point where we engage in cost benefit analysis. Instead, almost every one of them uh, exhibits what the, the philosophy of, I think it was uh, Jonathan Chait who called it zeroism, which is that at the end of the day, unless we have zero cases of COVID, we have to, we have to uh, throw our society up, up in the air. And I think zeroism needs to be uh, resisted um, by, by our elected officials. I mean, I, I, uh, I, there, I think there are, cross currents here. Let me just give you an example. So I was in Florida this weekend. Uh, I was in Miami and reading Twitter and seeing a kind of ghoulish excitement at the notion that Florida has more new cases than almost any state in the union. You see, DeSantis finally is going to be killing people. <laughs> finally, they said he was killing people in the summer of 2020. It didn't happen. They said he was killing people in the winter of 2021. It didn't happen. Now it's the summer of 2021 and caseloads are rising. And thank God, finally, DeSantis is going to get his. This is the flip side of the mask mandate sort of like, uh, you know, pro-mandate, pro-let's-go-back-inside, pro-everything, which is the real hunger and desire to punish the politicians who bucked liberal public opinion, liberal elite opinion, and did things the other way and were not punished for it by God. Finally, God is going to deliver his judgment. But when I look at the numbers, day to day to day to day, what I see, which indicates more again that there is a madness at work in the reimposition of these mandates, is caseloads are rising and death rates are flat. So the New York Times has gone from, let's say, 20,000 cases a day to 80,000 cases a day on its tracker. And the death toll has gone up from 240 to 310 per day. That is flat. That is not accelerated. And I noticed on Friday when the number barely reached 300, they had one of the little asterisky things where they said, to, yesterday, Delaware added many deaths, which means that the actual national death toll was nothing. Uh, so uh, let's... So I think there is something more political going on here than it is simply a panic or something like that. There is a hunger among the public health community to punish, to make clear that this surge is dangerous because they want it to be dangerous. There is something in them that wants it to be dangerous so that the people who evaded their dragnet 
and inv- evaded their wisdom get theirs finally? I don't Here's know that that's not conscious. That. Yes, please. <clears throat> Good morning, America, this morning, National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins was on saying, yeah, we all need to lean into these mask mandates. You're going to have to follow these mask mandates because, quote, we want to avoid lockdowns at all cost. That is not within your remit. Whether we lock down or not has never been a function of the national public health bureaucracy. This is, if it's a measure that is appealed to at all, it is a measure that is appealed to by local, state level, and municipal elected officials. It's not even a federal issue. Yeah, I mean, so they're just, and and what we've seen smartly on the part of a lot of these officials in places like Denver which was always kind of like cautious about being excessive with the protocols has been, has just been said, you just get vaccinated, just get vaccinated. New York state, as you said, now they're, uh, Andrew Cuomo's leaning on businesses to impose vaccination mandates, which is legally fraught. What have you uh, mandates from public enterprises, recommending that public enterprises require vaccination status for, for services. That's a legally fraught approach, but at least it's better than a, a top down mandate that violates discrimination statutes. And um, Mayor Bill de Blasio is saying we're not going back to an indoor mask mandate. We are going back to indoor mask suggestions. Wink, wink. But all of this reveals uh, the the local officials who are much more in touch with their local electorates can read the room better, which is intuitive, first of all. But second of all, shows the extent to which the public health bureaucracy has just been become so hopelessly out of touch and unable to calculate risk in a way that is um, compatible with what the national political mood is right now. I just want to add, though, uh, Noah, you know, um, it might not be within uh, Francis Collins's remit uh, to declare lockdown. But if Collins and Fauci recommend it to Biden, Biden will do it. I mean, I, there's no there's nothing he will recommend it. There's only so much he can well, do when Trump in recommended it, when Trump recommended it in 2020. The entire country shut down. So, I mean, what a president says matters. And if, if Collins and and Fauci go to Biden and say this, he has shown no independence, okay? So no matter what, no matter what you, and I don't think well of Donald Trump, as I've made clear over the last seven months, um, but he did not care what the experts said in any sphere. And so if it didn't make sense to him, he would resist, right? The thing about liberals is, uh, like Joe Biden, they really care what the experts say. <laughs> they do not resist what the experts say. If the experts tell them you need to do something, they will do it. And that's that's why you see, I think, uh, especially the, the on Twitter, as John was saying, this kind of, uh, OK, guys, time to fall in line. Let's do it. We have to go back because this is what we're telling everybody. And the highly infectious Delta variant is causing a, a, um, a new surge among the unvaccinated. So it's time to get in line. And this is what the experts say. That is very powerful among liberals and the Democratic Party. But that, that's, that's what makes what's happening in New York, the, you know, Cuomo's resisting being uh, king lockdown again. And uh, I think de Blasio, I think, is kind of signaling he, he is not particularly interested in, in um, reverting to where things were. Um, that's what makes that so interesting because not only are uh, is Cuomo and, and and other New York Democrats very susceptible to the cult of experts, um, but no one loves gloating about particularly uh, the New York Florida uh, COVID competition yeah. more than Cuomo. Um, so so he's yeah. he's 
he's picking up something in among the New York public that I'm glad to see that that he's picking up because I I am not even as sure as he is that that New Yorkers don't want it. So well, it may be that New York has such a high vaccination rate, right? If you looked at this map that uh, Leonhardt uh, uh, in his New York Times uh, newsletter the day, um, uh, put out um, last week. It was amazing the levels of vaccination among the Northeast Corridor, and and this and so it, it may just be that uh, De Blasio and Cuomo have much more room to uh, to feel that they can resist expert opinion than say Bowser, right? Where in D.C. Uh, the the vaccination rate is 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 nowhere uh, where it ought to be. We, we find ourselves in a situation in which we are talking about expert opinion. And so ordinarily, it would just throw us on the defensive, right? Because we're not experts. They're the experts. But Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, is a doctor. She is not a social, she is not a data scientist. And she has this bias, in my view, as do a lot of them, which is she is afraid that if she does not call for restrictions and bad things happen, she will spend her life being blamed for not having been more activist in intruding on the American people's freedoms. That it will be like, you stood there and you did nothing and history will judge you. Therefore, if I'm right about this, we find ourselves in a very interesting situation in which not only is there not a, a cost-benefit analysis or a risk-benefit analysis going on here, but it is the opposite of what is going on here. They do not want, they, the, if, they, if the whole idea is balance, risk, and freedom, they, that pushes them closer to unfreedom. Because of the fear of the judgment of their own colleagues and their own, and you know, and as I say, sort of history. Whereas sometimes you have to stand up and stand against the kind of backward looking or backward feeling ideas, and then also cast a skeptical eye on the data that is being thrown in your direction, like a skeptical eye on the Provincetown data, which appears to be 90% of everything that drove this. Because the, the essentially the mayor of Provincetown on Cape Cod said this on Saturday, the vaccines are working. Of the 900 cases related to the Provincetown cluster, there have been no deaths, seven hospitalizations, and the symptoms are largely mild. Our positivity peaked at 15%, that's of test cases, right, on 7-15 and was only 4.8% yesterday. The outbreak is contained and Provincetown is safe, okay? Indoor masking is helpful during a spike, but not sustainable long-term as a solution. Vaccination is. Okay, so this is the reason we're doing this. No one is dead, from the Provincetown outbreak, it's a month. No one is dead. Seven hospitalizations out of 900 people. Symptoms mild. Why is this happening? 
I understand that you see this increase in the case number, but you also have to look at the effect of the Delta variant, which is on the vaccinated, almost negligible. And it's not clear that on the unvaccinated, by the way, that it is anything near as deadly as the Alpha variant was. If it were, and the case numbers were rising this way, all you hear are these anecdotes about how ICUs are filling up. But they're weird anecdotes because they don't seem to be backed by actual evidence. It's like there was this pretty astonishing and horrifying story in the New York Times. And Abe, I want you to, I want to read this out to you and then have you respond. Jesus Jimenez, U.S. health officials have expressed concern over a simultaneous rise in Delta infections and cases of RSV, a highly contagious seasonal flu-like illness that is more likely to affect children and older adults. Cases of RSV have risen gradually since early June, with an even greater spike in the past month. The illness, which can cause symptoms that include runny nose, coughing, seizing, and fever, normally begins to spread in the fall, making the summer spike unusual. In a series of posts on Twitter, Dr. Heather Hack, a pediatrician at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, described an increase in both coronavirus and RSV hospitalizations. After many months of zero or few pediatric COVID cases, we are seeing infants, children, and teens with COVID pouring back into the hospital more and more each day, she wrote, adding that patients have ranged in age from two weeks to 17 years old, including including some with COVID pneumonias. We are on the front end of a huge COVID surge, wrote Dr. Hack, who could not be reached for comment on Sunday. We are now having winter-level patient volumes of acutely ill infants, toddlers with RSV, and I worry we'll run out of beds and staff to handle the surge upon surge. Okay. RSV is not COVID. My kids got RSV. Matt's kids probably. Noah, your kids might have gotten RSV. RSV is a thing. It happens. Kids get RSV every year. RSV is not COVID. And Dr. Heather Hack says, we are on the front end of a huge COVID surge. We're seeing kids pouring into the hospital. Really? Show me the data. Kids are not pouring into the hospital. But and they're, I'll bet you they're not pouring into her hospital. She can't I'll be bet you they're, comment. I know. <laughs> How do we know? You can't reach her. But this is a piece on the front page of the New York Times, the headline of which is, in addition to COVID, more children are getting a respiratory virus. Yesterday, the headline said, increasing concern about COVID surge among children. They changed the headline. But that was what was up six hours yesterday or eight hours before some editor decided that the piece was an act of disinformation. On the well, part the piece of, is still up. The piece is up, but the headline was changed. But but even the piece, the, I mean, literally, it's hard to understand the piece as anything but an attempt to establish a kind of Pavlovian association between RSV and COVID, um, so that you're sort of con- the reader is conditioned to think that um, everything is COVID. By the way, and, RSV is not deadly. <laughs> Yeah, it's really unpleasant, but it's not deadly. So there's a surge in RSV. Apparently, there's a surge in everything. My kid got COVID twice. COVID. Yeah, my kid got strep throat twice at sleepaway camp this summer because because everybody was so isolated. Certain kinds of diseases. This is what happening everywhere. Colds. Everyone's getting colds because nobody was together. 
all of that stuff. That's a real thing. So RSV is spreading earlier than it would otherwise. Maybe. Who knows? We don't know why. Sometimes these things happen. Sometimes they happen in Houston and they don't happen anywhere else. Because I don't hear that there's a surge in RSV in the New York hospitals or a surge in children with COVID because there is no surge of children with COVID. And the New York Times yesterday told America, paper with 6 million online subscribers, the most important news, sir, that there was a surge of kids with COVID. It is a lie. And And terrified parents. Speaking right. from and experience, terrified. I read that piece yeah. and I saw the headline and I uh, I was miserable. I mean, I was already miserable, but, but, <laughs> but it made me even more miserable. But then as I read closely, as you just did, you're like, well, hold it. This is a Twitter thread that Jesus found. I mean, there were so many. What's the difference between uh, the Twitter thread of the pediatrician and uh, any of the other crazy Twitter threads out there? And, and now, look, the pediatrician probably, I have no reason to doubt her existence, or that she's seeing something. But as you point out, it's the conflation of the RSV and the COVID that is what turns maybe a spike in in the cases of this uh, disease among kids in Houston into a a, um, point of uh, argument for a return to um, hypervigilance, mask mandates, um, and, and potentially lockdowns. Okay, so let's talk now about... This Florida, a bit now we're moving into media misinformation and disinformation. CBS News tweet, also Saturday. DeSantis will allow parents in Florida to defy school mask mandates. I don't know where they are, by the way, that, that they're being defied. First of all, they haven't been issued. Second of all, I'm not, I think he sort of has to issue it. Maybe locals can. Despite health officials saying younger people are COVID-19's, quote, new target, unquote, okay? CBS News story. On online, and our friend Jay Caruso from the Washington Examiner wrote this scary tweet. But here are the numbers buried in the story: "Quote: More than 160 people in the state, 29 years or younger. It's an interesting demographic category. I've literally never seen before. 29 years or younger have died from COVID-19, including seven children under the age of 16." There are 3 million kids between the ages of 0 and 17 in Florida, he says. I'm not quite sure that number is right because there are – anyway, there are 3 million kids, 7 deaths. COVID is not hunting children. The fear is because children – first of all, under 16, we don't know what the number is under 12 because there are people vaccinated you can get vaccines from 12 to 16. Anyway. Either it's hunting children or it's not. If we're hunting children, we would know it right now. We would know it, and I would be, like, terrified for my kids the way Matt says he was terrified for his kids when he looked, and Noah would certainly be terrified for his kids. COVID is not hunting children. The children numbers are not higher. I mean, when, where there are higher numbers in in testing, it's because either people have symptoms, so they test, or because they need to go somewhere, and they are obliged to test to go do something. It's not like people are just testing willy-nilly. Everybody's testing randomly, and therefore we have a surge of cases. We don't know what's going on with Delta. We There may be some people think that there's 10 times the amount of Delta and that it's so asymptomatic that, in fact, people are getting it, don't know it, and then they're getting antibodies, in which case it's like a fantastic version of the vaccine. They're not getting sick, but they're getting antibodies because they get COVID without even knowing that they have COVID. 
Um, I just want to say that, you know, the, the, the public should be sort of hip to this by now because uh, the media has done this with the discovery of every new variant. There have been these anecdotal stories about how this time it's different because this time we're seeing a, a rise in cases in kids. Um, and it's, it's never about the data. And at least at one point, we had an admission <clears throat> from a very prominent public health official that they were just trying to juke the stats by being alarmist, right? I mean, the idea was to manipulate public behavior. And all this precedes COVID by a lot. The uh, elite press and elite opinion makers are terrible at calculating cost-benefit analysis and risk and, and are kind of manipulative of you because they think that you are too, and this goes to, you know, just I'm surveying a couple of headlines for something I'm writing along these lines. It includes football playing in high school. Why are poor people playing football? This is an NPR headline. Poor people are playing football too much. And they don't understand the risks associated with this. And suggesting that NPR doesn't understand the rewards associated with it. Sharing breast milk. Using a tanning bed. Getting pregnant after 35. Swimming in a chlorinated pool. All this stuff is really dangerous for you. Why are you doing it? Because it's not really all that dangerous for us, and maybe we like it. Maybe we've um, decided that this is a better course for us than you know, our, our enlightened public policy experts would the, the course that they would set us on, which would lock us in a padded room, essentially. You know, uh, by the way, on the sharing breast milk point, which is a very inter- weird, interesting subculture thing where people sell breast milk, uh, you know, like on, on, on eBay and stuff like that. You know, every uh, every elite person on the planet Earth from like the 10th to the 20th centuries was nourished by someone's breast milk other than their mother's. Like wet nursing is what is what separated the wealthy from the poor. So, I mean, I you know, and I assume that their uh, death, you know, that they had more immunity they were healthier than the poor so i not that i don't even know why i went on that tangent but you know a lot of those those monarchs they turned out a little crazy john well they were okay i guess so yeah yeah it's not not as though there is no risk associated with these activities yes it's that the people who are focused hyper focused on risk do so to the exclusion of reward and even don't allow themselves to cont- to think that there is a rationale that could be legitimate in the pursuit of these activities. It's okay. just you simply are just too stupid to know what's good for you. Okay, I got a theory of everything here I want to throw out as you're talking. I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's worth bringing up again. We're talking about cost-benefit analysis. Cost-benefit analysis is a very controversial, complicated thing. Because whenever there is a tort case... Whenever there's a case about why somebody got sick from a drug that, you know, was approved or uh, why a car was led on the market or a medical device was led on the market when there were statistics that showed that it could, you could die if you drove in that car or something like that. The argument is, well, we did all this testing and the testing showed that in 100 million cases, you know, only 10 people would die if thus and such happened. And then the tort bar says 10 million is too many. A 10 is too many. 10 is too many. Uh, One is too many. Uh, This is an act of terrible injustice. And it's emotionally very satisfying. And there were David Kelly television shows from, 
you know, uh, LA law to the practice to ever whatever to, you know, bait Aaron Brockovich, whatever you want to count, whatever you want to call it. The idea that one, one death from something where there might have been a cost benefit analysis that allowed a product or something to come to market where that was potentially deadly, uh, all, you know, with you know, then cost benefit analyses are evil. And who believes in that stuff? That's, that is a core belief conviction of the Democratic Party, part of its hostility to capitalism and to sort of corporate whatever. And now they are the they are running the asylum. And as I say, cost benefit analysis is an evil. Rochelle Walensky does not believe that she needs to engage in cost benefit analysis. It is better for her to panic than it is for her to say, I mean, that's really terrible about Provincetown. It's bad. And you know, we need to go on and push people to get vaccinated so they don't hurt themselves. But we're not gonna sh- put every mass again. Because a, a bunch of people p- packed into bars in Provincetown when it was raining. What are you, crazy? But she can't say that. She doesn't have an ideology that allows that thought into her head. However, if you're Ron Klain or you're Biden's political team, you got to be saying, this is it. We're like, <laughs> we're dead in the water here. The, the, the economy is going to suffer. And in 2022, Republicans are walking around saying those were the people who screwed up the economy. He said he could handle it, and they didn't handle it, and everything went bad, and inflation is rising, and da-da-da-da-da. What argument are they going to have? He said that he was going to end COVID. He was going to end the COVID emergency. And now he is reimposing the COVID emergency under non-emergency conditions. I've 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 silenced you. I mean, you're you're struck into silence by my by the genius of <laughs> my remember, theory of everything. Do you remember that uh, that that Michael Barone book uh, from uh, Gosh? It must have been 15 years ago. It was uh, Hard America, Soft America, and it kind of got to mm-hmm. this got to this point that you know the Democratic Party uh, has just this aversion to risk um, that that defines it. And uh, the, the issue is with COVID. It's it. It's not. It's not just a tort, right? It's not just a um, bad consumer product. It is this pandemic that emerged from China, that disrupted the entire world, that closed down the entire global economy, um, that froze. Uh, first, it froze American society, and then it splintered American society, and and so it's just harder, I think, to um, get out uh, of the mentality that it inspires and w- when. The reason that I've been depressed is that I don't see how we move on from 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 COVID because as the disease continues to develop and there will be more variants, it's going to become more endemic. And if really our standard is we can't allow any spread at the because of the potential risk to the unvaccinated population, well, the, what's the end point? Are are is this generation of school children at least going to have to attend schools wearing masks for the foreseeable for years? I mean, that to me is is a terrifying thought. And, and a corollary to it is, I haven't, among, uh, you know, outside of this podcast and the the rallies in you know Dodger Stadium and various uh, places on the conservative media network and kind of uh, conservative governors who are aiming to run for president someday. 
you don't really see much popular outrage. You know, I mean, Roger Kimball had this piece over the weekend. I saw the headline said, when will the COVID rebellion come? And the fact that it was a question mark was interesting, which is like, it hasn't, it hasn't really come. Like people follow the rules. Um, and, and that, I, I understand why they do that, but I also get really uh, worried that, that, that this will define our lives for, right. for years to come. No, the problem is that the COVID rebellion is is taking place in the worst possible form, which is the resistance to vaccination. That is the COVID rebellion. It is the most self-defeating and dangerous kind of rebellion. I got to interject. I think this is oversimplifying the, the matter. Um, <clears throat> there is in, The COVID rebellion took place in, in Los Angeles in the form of non-enforcement. The sheriff said, I'm not going to devote one ounce of resources to enforcing this thing. Um, Across the country, you've seen very dark blue municipalities sort of lean back into masking, where everyone else outside of those municipalities is not doing that, save on a voluntary basis, individual voluntary basis. If there is a revolt, it will take the form of a very quiet, sort of not, you know, not very seismic until you digest the the results. uh, revolt in the form of uh, an, an, an election route for the politicians who endorse this sort of thing. You're not going to see these people. These are not people who just who go into the streets and and protest and shine spotlights into public health officials' houses and put their pet children's faces on posters and fly them all over. That's that's the left. That's not what these people are going to do. If they do it, they will revolt in the form of uh, a political backlash. And John, you just already highlighted it which is the cl- the clash of competing priorities that the Biden administration is attempting to navigate. First, the liberal managerial classes need to contain control and beat this disease. And the second, a first-term president's prime directive, which is they need to convince the public that they're better off now than they were how many years ago. And the former is, is, obje- is winning out over the latter in unmistakable ways. And as you say, you're starting to see the Biden administration, people like on Twitter yelling at, at media outlets in all caps, from the from the for, the forty six administration saying, you know, you're, what are you doing? You're talking about the vaccines like they're not working anymore. They're raging in every direction they can because their priority, their economic priorities, their political priorities are at odds now with the need to contain this disease. You can expect, I think, their their need for political self preservation to win out over the over the the public health apparatus. I don't believe. I think they, if you excuse me for putting it this way, they do not have the antibodies necessary to resist the public health officials. That was the point of part of the point of my theory of everything, which is this is a 30 year uh, ideology that has been drummed into Democrats. It's this riskless, hard America, soft America, mommy party, daddy party separation between liberals and conservatives, the left and the right, it has pushed the right into, frankly, you know, caricaturish and cartoonish, the uh, embrace of, like, being the daddy, being, like, a violent, abusive daddy. (laughs) That's like, you know, if you're going to be, you know, like, the coddling, smothering mommy, I'm going to be the violent, abusive daddy. The bad daddy, yeah. The bad daddy versus the overweening smothering, mommy. yeah. Yeah, uh, the right. bad yeah. daddy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's, unfortunately, that's the horrible dynamic that has set in in the United States. And I, I just don't know that they have the ability. I mean, a better, all we were told for months was, oh my God, 
this White House, it's so competent. It's so incredibly competent. On the most important issue facing the country, they don't know what the CDC is doing. Like, this is Trump times two in relation to not the, 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 the no one being on the same page. According, not to Politico, but another piece last week, the provenance of which I cannot remember right now, the White House didn't know that the CDC was going to announce that it was going to recommend a, ma- a mask mandate. That is astounding. We haven't even like begun to think about this. They can't, they shouldn't be doing that without the president saying, okay, it is an enormous, it is an enormous matter, a public policy decision. They do not have control of a runaway bureaucracy. They don't know what they're doing. They are incompetent. They are bad. Biden, the Biden administration is bad at being president. I'm not saying Biden's bad at being president because we already know he's not president. He's not president. It's some amalgam of Biden people and loyalists who are president, and they are bad at it. Those are their pronouns. They yeah, they. exactly. Their pronouns are they. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, w- w- this is funny to me because um, really one of the biggest knocks against the Trump administration during COVID was that Trump had sidelined the CDC and had didn't, didn't have them involved. <laughs> um I think he was on to something. Right. He was. And you know who else is on to something? I got to tell you, Mohammed El-Aryan is the, is the guest on this week's post-corona podcast, Dan Senor's podcast that tries to, sadly, is now slightly misnamed because we're not, we're not moving into post-corona anytime soon, it appears. But uh, this is one of my favorite podcasts, a fantastic sort of study of America, where we are now. And Mohammed El Arian uh, is an economist who has maybe the most glittering resume in the world of economics. Uh, he was at the he was at the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund. Then he ran Pimco, or he was one of the leading uh, people running Pimco, which has two trillion dollars under management. He ran the Harvard hedge fund, basically. Then he backed off. He's now president of Queens College at Cambridge. He's a professor at Wharton. He writes books. And uh, this podcast is largely about the threat of inflation and his conversation with Dan about the threat of inflation. And he says, in his estimation, that there is a 65% probability that inflation will be long-lived, 35% that it will be transitory, and 5% that the Fed will act decisively to cut off the threat of inflation sooner rather than later. Um, and what he and he then qualifies it by saying that uh, the word transitory, which started being used in like the winter as signs of inflation were rising, was taken to mean at the beginning two months. And now people are using the word transitory to mean two years. Well, two years of inflation is an inflationary spiral. That is not a transitory bout of inflation. He points out that the core inflation, the basket of commodity that people use, went up 6% month over month from May to June. This is a very, very, very serious matter. And he says it is because uh, every time the Fed tries to stop its sort of perpetual and endless pump priming, the market has a tantrum because it's like if you give a kid sugar every day and then you say, you know what, it's time for you. The dentist says you can't have sugar. The kid will have a tantrum and cry. And you have to like live through the tantrum in order to break the kid's 
you know, uh, addiction to sugar and the Fed can't bear it. The Fed cannot handle the tantrum. And so the sugar keeps flowing. And so you have the Fed between the Fed and the, and the, and the federal government's stimulus. We're at about $7 trillion in new spending. As he says, there was a time when the idea of a trillion dollars in federal spending altogether was unthinkable. And we now do not blink at the proposal for bills that are two or four trillion dollars. Um, it's a fantastic conversation. It's enlightening. It's enlivening. Go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Download this episode. Listen to it. Muhammad El Arian and Dan Senor post Corona, and we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. I almost said the Glop podcast because I never thank anybody on this podcast for. Because what am I going to thank the X Chair every day? I can't thank the X Chair every day. We're, we don't have the X Chair today, which is why now I'm even mentioning it for free, and I'm not going to say anything more. Uh, speaking of stimulus and everything, Matt, the infrastructure bill landed last night um and uh it's 2700 2700 pages 2700 pages well it's not 27000 pages which i think no. one of the budgets one of the budgets that a will couple be the of years ago was 13 bill yes Bernie, yes that yes. Bernie's working on that will yes. be yes um can we talk a little bit about uh so so basically this is going to pass obviously uh i i, Looks I like it. It's, it still has a few hurdles but, uh, and then, and then the question is whether Republicans, when it is going to pass, whether they decide that it is better for them, the the ten the ten that that the ten Republicans who are going to agree to it make it passable, right? Whatever. But will there be sixty votes or seventy? Will Dem- will Republicans want in and be able to say that they that they spent this money, or will it be better for them to say they had nothing to do with it? Well, I, I think the first uh, hurdle it had to overcome last week, it passed with 67 votes. And so right. that was 17 Republicans who wanted to move to debate the um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, we should say it's a trillion dollars. 500 billion of that trillion is in new spending, right? So um, it's net 500 billion. And there are no tax increases in the bill. Um, uh, in fact, there are even no... Uh, gas tax increases or some user fees they pick up, but mainly it's just kind of repurposing and frankly, probably budgetary tricks that, that get this um, uh, into some type of uh, balance. Um, and uh, the key here is McConnell is a soft yes, which I think is what influenced, uh, you know, the, the additional seven senators, you know, to take you from 10 senators to 17 senators as a few more hurdles. What strikes me about it is if it does pass, I was trying to think, and John, you you have such a great memory for this. This is the first major bipartisan non-emergency bill, if it passes, I believe in almost 20 years. Yes, I think think No Child Left Behind was the last bill. No Child Left Behind would be the last last one. That is a tremendous achievement, I I will say, as a squish, as, you know, as a squish. Hmm. That That is something. To, to to that's rather impressive, and what I can't I can't fit that in to everything else that's happening in our society and politics and world. Quite frankly, at a macro level, everything seems to be coming apart. <laughs> you know, the Taliban's taking over Afghanistan. Iran is droning ships, and yet we're still in this engaged in this farce in Vienna, um, uh, 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 Russia, China. Um, then you have crime: ten people shot in Queens. Yesterday, 
we have the border. A thousand, a thousand illegal migrants showed up. The, the picture is incredible. Um, you have the border. You have inflation, as we mentioned in the break. Uh, so at that level, much less everything we were talking about with coronavirus and the splintering of our society, it seems like everything's falling apart. But then I look at this, and this is the first time in two decades that Congress might actually work. And I, I can't figure out. I don't know what the what that uh, that juxtaposition means exactly. I'd be interested in all of your thoughts. I have a quick thought, which is that um, there was a sense of a last chance here, pr- pr- partially because of the twenty years since there was a bipartisan bill, and partially because in the Yuval Levin telling. Being a member of Congress is now hellish. If you want to be a practical politician, it is nothing short of a living hell. It is all performance. It is all fundraising. It is all games. It's all this. If you want to be in Congress to do things, the only way you get to be to do things is to be in a majority that is so vast that I don't know that we're going to reach again. I mean, Obama reached it for nine months, six months, seven months after after Al Franken was finally sworn in as senator before Ted Kennedy died in 2009. Um, that This was going to be it. Like, And Biden said, I want a bipartisan deal and basically made it very clear to the Republicans, I think, despite all the weird prevarications and 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 going backs and forths on how there was going to have to be a reconciliation bill, that he would do almost anything if they could just do this. If they could do this, he would have their back. He wanted to be able to say that he made Washington work again. That was the most important thing to him of everything in politics. And enough of them said, I believe him. And we would also like to be able to say that we made Washington work again, which of course raises the interesting question about whether – if there's a big celebration, the Senate passes the bill, whether the House blows it up. Because it really could. I mean, they only I think they only need five Democrats to vote against it in the House, and the bill will the bill will fail. Um it's a possibility. Uh and, and certainly uh AOC uh has been talking like that, and the progressives are furious at the Biden administration for not maintaining the eviction moratorium. Uh, that we've had for uh, 18 months, and they're camping outside the Capitol to, to protest that. At the end of the day, though, I do think in the back of their heads, uh, this is this might be it. <laughs> so, so even they might not want to, uh, you know, cut off their nose to, noses to spite their faces because if you if this doesn't pass, the 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 three and a half trillion the, the Bernie bill. That is already going to be reduced in size. That was made clear last week as well when Cinema said she would not vote for uh, the, the the thing that Bernie is cooking up in the in the in the uh, basement of the budget committee. Um, so it's that even if if we get it uh, to to a place where Cinema might vote for eventual passage of the big reconciliation bill, it's going to be much smaller. So so some of these progressives, you know, uh, uh, they're going to have to. <laughs> They're going to have to face reality, I think. I mean, not only might this not be it, <clears throat> but there's the very distinct possibility that everybody who stuck their neck outs for this thing is not rewarded for it. Do you detect in the national mood 
any sort of appetite for an infrastructure bill. Well, other than the public polls that show that people support it overwhelmingly. Well, are there going to be are there going to be rewards for the politicians who support this in the form of electoral benefit? Well, are there or, or are there opponents going to be? I think the Democrats handed more ammunition to go after the compromisers. This is, this is what people support. People support the hard infrastructure. It's the second bill. It's the Bernie Sanders bill. The human, the so-called human infrastructure, just social spending up the wazoo. That's what people oppose. If I you're, understand if you're, it in the if, abstract. It's not the abstract. In the abstract. No, it's the polls. And no. if, if people right. campaign, I get it. What if people, people campaign on this bill that they brought roads and bridges and fixing the schools, voters like that. I mean, in I, the I, absence of a culture war narrative, I don't know how this gets a lot of a lot of traction in the press. Ah, but that's the bet. You see, if you're right, Noah, then this whole then the game is over. Because if all we have is the culture war, and that's all there is, and therefore it is better for Congress to be completely dysfunctional for the sake of individual members of Congress and senators. Uh, that it is better for it to be dysfunctional for their own political futures than it is for them to be able to say, I came to Washington and I did something to help you or to help the co- whatever. It's a test case. I think you're in, it's I don't know if that's my bet. That's my fear. And I you know. can certainly see the outlines of such a scenario yeah. within an ace of being played out. You right. can. That's the way it looks online. Right. But open yeah. up Twitter. And, 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 and in cable looks. news and in the front page of the New York Times. Is, yeah, but they're all, all the same. Cable news is Twitter. Yeah, it's, it's, all the the, it's all the same. So, so there is a bet, right? So there is a bet that the that the particularly the ten Republicans are making, uh, and of course they're not all going to be up for re-election. Well, right, that might be that might be the missing ingredient in what in right. your explanation is. Who's up? But of course, in the House, everybody's up. Everybody's up, and so the House argument, the argument for Democrats not to destroy this in the House is: you really want to kill off the Joe Biden presidency. You want you want to strangle it, and you want to be responsible for strangling it in its crib, handing him a colossal defeat just eight months into the presidency. Is that what you really want? In the end, you got to make a choice. Life is full of hard choices. This is the end for him. This is what he wanted. If he doesn't get it, he is he is castrated. He is politically castrated. He I will think that, have sound, re- that seems unlikely, but the right. more likely scenario is that it passes. Yeah. And it just doesn't make a big ripple because it's it's not going to be felt in individual lives for some time. You're not going to see, you know, shovel ready projects on your corner for a while. It's just it's it's competent governance, but competent governance in this case, we I think we can all agree, to, you know, in, in a good way. Is not is not very visible in your daily life. We don't know though, because what we know is that these at the at the state level, relatively non ideological governors or governors, despite the fact that everybody seems to think that Ron DeSantis is you know is Ken Paxton, relatively non ideological governors are ga- are garnering colossal levels of support all across the country. People that non intensively political people don't like American politics because it's too culture ward. So they are making a bet that they can reach the less online with this, with these messages, which is we do we're, we're here to work for you. We're not here to, you know, attack liberals or fight concern, whatever. We're here to work for you. And that's what we're doing, and that's it. Like that's, I think, 
I mean, this would be Biden's one claim to the normalcy, quote unquote, that he promised. Right. The everything only except- else, everything else has been abnormal. Yeah. But well, if he were finally say, I was able to do this and and it's popular, this part is popular and you will see it in your lives. I remember after they passed the stimulus in 2009, you you can't help seeing it because, first of all, they put up signs everywhere that say this project brought to you by the uh, in that case, the American uh, era, yeah, era recovery act. Yeah, the era. Uh, and then, of course, it causes all these traffic jams. This is the unintended yeah, consequence right. of the infrastructure right. yeah. spending is yeah. you're stuck in traffic all the time yeah. because of the construction crews. See, people will people will experience yeah. it. Yeah, true. Yeah. But I mean, if you're the governing party, an, an analogy to the legislative victories of 2009 is more than a little ominous. Oh, for sure. No, because well, no, but, but uh, to be fair, in that case, this the, what we're talking about in Obama's case was the equivalent of getting. This and then the uh, Bernie Sanders right, bill, exactly. So the reconciliation, the four bill, pieces, right. the four pieces of legislation that Obama got in from 2009 to 2010 were transformed. I mean, it wasn't just one; it wasn't just the stimulus, which of course did set off all of this discussion. But he got that. He got the um, he got uh, Dodd Frank, and he got uh, and of course he got Obamacare, and then there was uh, the tarp, second tarp two. Yeah. TARP two, four pieces of legislation, two and a half trillion dollars in entirely new spending, which right now sounds like you know antiquated, you know that it could, but you know remember that was beyond all belief, and it did ignite a, you know it ignited a wildfire. This is only one bill. He does this, and then he doesn't get human infrastructure, and that's going to look reasonable by comparison, not to not to good government, small government conservatives who don't like government spending. But we don't know how many of those there are anymore, to be honest. I mean... And also, I mean, we, we just, just don't, don't know what we'll be arguing about next October, right? I mean, it, it is yeah. kind of... The the, yeah. the midterm will be decided most likely on things yeah. that are yeah. somewhat related to what we're arguing about today, but in yeah. very in other ways, not, you know. So, yeah. okay, I don't know. I want to talk a little about it, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Iran, but first I want to talk to you about our friend David Bonson at the Bonson Group and his newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. I talked to you about uh, on the previous spot about Mohammed El Arian's worries about inflation. David kind of comes at this from an opposite perspective. If you read his daily newsletters, you're going to see talk about the other perspective, which is that we are actually heading into a deflationary spiral, not unlike Japan's. And that is a very important perspective worth hearing at a moment when opinion seems to be going in the other direction. But if you want to know what's going on daily in the markets, what happened today, and what it means, and what the Fed is up to, and all of that, you read the dctoday.com. If you want a larger global analysis of macroeconomic trends, you read dividendcafe.com. That's where you should go to sign up for these new newsletters, dividendcafe.com. The Bonsa Group. $3 billion under management, bi-coastal management, financial services firm run by David Bonson and his 29 colleagues. It's a terrific newsletter, terrific newsletters, terrific firm, the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Okay, so Iran, two things. One is, you, Matt, you mentioned the drone. Basically, uh, the British foreign minister, Dominic Rabb, came out and said, we adjudge that Iran 
targeted warship, targeted ships with drones, uh, you know, totally unprovoked out of nowhere. We didn't say it. The British said it. I don't know why the British said it, but they said it. So fine. So there's that. And then I want to talk about this piece, another piece in the New York Times, not that I want to hyper-focus on the New York Times, about the failure, what they judge to be the failure of the Iran nuclear deal, which, if the story is accurate, suggests a level of delusion and fantasizing on the part of the American negotiators in Vienna working on reviving the JCPOA that is kind of jaw-dropping because apparently they believed they had a deal. They had a deal. They had agreed on every particular. They were so sure that they left their clothes in Vienna. They left their clothes like, I don't know, in a, I don't know, in like a, in the airport, uh, you know, locker. one of those locker. Yeah. Or something because Rob they were just, like, come back. Rob <laughs> <laughs> left it there. He still has left the, it there. He has the key. Yeah, yeah. It just reminds me of a two thousand year old man joke, which is when he's asked where where his favorite vacation place is, and he says Europe. I keep a locker in Europe. <laughs> anyway, Rob Malley keeps a locker in Europe, yeah. and so all their clothes were there because they were so sure they had a deal in the run up to an Iranian election in which both candidates for president were opposed, were, were like hardliners. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know what they're... T- and, and, and we already heard from every, like, the way the mullahs were talking, there was going to be no deal. They already said there was going to be no deal. Then the, now, they're, what are they? They're thunderstruck because, you know, Zarif said, we got a deal! It's like, oh, really? Congratulations. Like, who are you? Like, p- please... Go carry somebody's jacket again. Can somebody explain this to me? I was fascinated by that piece. Rob Malley, who's our chief negotiator, is the key source for the piece. The secondary source for the piece is a guy who probably used to work for Malley at the International Crisis Group, yeah. who at the very end of the piece says, well, we have more sanctions we could give up. But the sticking point is, the sticking point is this. Iran is demanding that the president of the United States pro- promise that none of his successors will ever reverse the deal, which the Biden administration recognizes is is a complete non sequitur. It's a it's a complete impossibility, and so it's also be a humiliation. And 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 finally, it's it, part of the trouble is, and this goes back to the original nuclear deal. The nuclear deal is not a treaty. If this were an actual treaty negotiated with Iran and submitted to the Senate for ratification, it would be much more difficult for a pre- for a subsequent president to get out of it. Of course, it would also never be approved, which is why Obama right. went around this way and why Biden tried to as well. But I don't think there's any getting around this final sticking point because, it, and it actually does suggest, as you're kind of uh, alluding to, John, that the Ameri- maybe the Iranians didn't want a deal. <laughs> they kind of know that this is just, it's not going right. to happen. But the piece said... The piece itself said, why would the Iranians want a deal? The centrifuges are spinning. They're, they're, they're making the materials. No one can stop them. What's in it for them well, to have a deal? Economy, they got the $150 well, billion. they have riots, they okay, have riots right. in the streets now right, because okay. they can't supply uh, their population yeah. with water. Okay, yeah. The economy is still crushed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's these, uh, the, the, oh, the maximum pressure campaign <laughs> has put the, uh, IRGC in this vice, right? So there are, there, they want to get out of this box and they want to do it the same way they've always done, which is by holding the world hostage to their nuclear program. But we've or, reached a point where it's, right. it's just not, it's not feasible. I mean, we cannot say they would have to drop their demand that Biden 
abase himself by saying, "From I henceforth, no American president will renege on the deal um, in order for them to get to an agreement. If that's real. I mean, look, Abe, let me just ask you this. So, so Matt's making the, you know, the prudent case that they would want out of the, they would want out of the box. But Raisi, the new pre- is a hardliner. Khamenei is probably a hardliner. You know, there are advantages. Yeah, there are riots over water or whatever. Like, totalitarian states don't necessarily mind the privations of their citizenry uh, if it allows them to make their lives even more miserable and drive them into a state, a condition of, you know, depression and hopelessness and paralysis that leaves them even more in control than they were before. Yeah, I mean, I think they they mind it to the extent that it it prevents um, trade, you know, uh, to the extent that it, it uh, other other countries, you know, um, may be reluctant to do uh, business. But we don't really see much of that anymore, anyway. Um, I mean, and I think, you know, the, the, why the um, the British spoke out about this droning, by the way, is because the the tanker that was that was hit is it's a complicated thing it's uh it's the tanker itself is owned by a japanese company managed by a british company which is owned by an israeli billionaire and uh sadly a, a british national died on it Fair i enough. thought you were going to say and the aristocrats oh. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> perfect ending matt connetty thank you so much for joining us uh, for uh, Abe and Noah and the uh, and the vacation and Christine Rosen, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.